if, uh, if you were here when we first planted Open Table, uh, then you probably have the word tension like burned in your soul somewhere. Um, you probably just find yourself mumbling that word throughout the day because we like really leaned into the word tension. It was one of our buzzwords when we first planted the church. Um, our very first like long summer study we did was a walk through the book of Acts. We were a new church, so we studied a new church. Um, and uh, <laughs> one of the primary things we did in that book was address all the places, all the tension points over and over again where the Bible like says this is true, but it also says that is true. And it seems really hard to believe that both of those could possibly be true. Um, and, and, and we just looked at those and held them and, and, uh, and just embraced the tension that that creates. And, and we as people don't generally like this. In fact, true story. Years ago, when I was kind of planning and dreaming about planting a church someday, um, we were much younger. As Esther and I were getting home from a date night, we pulled in the driveway. I told her that I knew what I wanted to call our, our church someday when we planted it. And she was like, okay. Like she kind of leaned in and I said, I want to call it, go ahead. I want to call it Tension Church. And I was like, we could call it TC for short. And like when people come, we go, hey, welcome to Tension. Like, and, uh, and I was like rambling on about all the curiosity this would spark and the interest. And, and I kid you not, I hear the car door slam as Esther runs into the house bawling. Like, like, why does my husband have to make everything hard? Why can't anything be easy? And, uh, and, uh, and, and like, why does everything got to be so stressful? Uh, and this was interesting to me because my wife theologically actually embraces tension really easily. She, way, and way before I did, while I was still kind of trying to find clean little bows for everything to fit in and, and tie up all my little theological questions and all the complexity of divinity into nice little boxes I could handle. Um, she was way easier at embracing mystery uh, and, dare I say, tension. Um, but I think Esther's reaction shines some light on why we don't like tension. And I think it might even shine a little bit of light on some of the issues of the church. Because um, what on earth could make a woman who, who loves mystery and mostly doesn't trust easy answers um, to describe the God of everything, um, what could make her, like, run away from the word um, tension? I mean, I think it's fairly self-evident. Um, if there's tension in ideas, there's usually tension between people. And, uh, and though my wife loves mystery, she doesn't like conflict. And, and we're not very good at doing tension without conflict. Um, and that's why she ran away um, at the end of our date night. She couldn't imagine a church that would embrace tension without constantly fighting. And she did not like the idea of constantly fighting. Um, and, uh, and we much prefer to know exactly what we believe, um, even if we've got to put on blinders to do it. And we want to know that the people around us believe exactly the same thing. Um, it's what we're comfortable with. And, uh, and here's the deal. Um, it shouldn't be news to anybody that that is tearing our world apart right now. It's, it's brutal um, how little we can handle a little bit of conflict and tension. Um, nobody um, will tolerate it. Anything that can be seen as offensive has to be canceled. Disagreement is now hate speech. Um, the phrase sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me is no longer true. Like now apparently um, something as simple as a careless pronoun um, or a simple disagreement causes trauma, warrants protection, and needs medical assistance and convalescence to get over it. Like it's crazy what's happening in our world. And here's the painful part for me. Um, I believe Christians started it. <laughs> I think this is on us. Because um, historically we have not been the, we, the most thick-skinned people. Canceling... Uh, uh, we're, we, we've been big on canceling for years. I think we kind of started that. We divide over every ideological disagreement. Um, we call those in our own camp 
who disagree with us apostate because um, we believe our ideals are so important that if you don't agree with me, clearly you're going to hell. Uh, I mean, how could you get more canceled than then you're obviously going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus the way I do. Like, we are we are the canceling people. When we feel hurt or offended or disagree, we just make up new realities for ourselves, um, which, of course, comes with language that we expect everybody else to learn and use. Uh, if you don't believe me, what on earth is a Baptist? Or where is a Lutheran in the Bible? Or, or how about the Assemblies of God? Like, we just create our own new realities, put new words around it. Um, and those might seem like unimportant nuances that we just use to define details, but um, I dare you to call a Baptist a Pentecostal and see what happens. You think, you think, uh, or call a call a Methodist a fundamentalist, and you think getting a pronoun wrong is is drama. Try that. Like try try getting somebody's denomination wrong and 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 see how the drama plays out. I mean, can you imagine God listening to us Protestants? complain about gender identity issues in our country, screaming, God only made two genders. And you can almost hear God whisper, yeah, and I also only made one church. Not the 3,000 plus denominations we like to talk about, but one church. But we have historically been a thin-skinned people. When I say historically, I mean the past few hundred years. There's obviously been some really tough and resilient believers, but generally speaking, we're pretty whiny. Now, I bring up that comparison for two reasons. First, how many of you at the beginning of this, when I started talking about pronouns and hate speech and, and canceling and drama, felt that little glib self-satisfaction for a second? Like, oh yeah, he's going to talk about it, preach it. How many of you felt that just a little? Be honest. Like, we do. Oh, heck yeah. Now, how many of you, as soon as I flipped into the church, started to feel that uncomfortable squirming? Like, yeah, that's not nearly as much fun. Like, oh my God, we did start this. Like, not, not you, other Christians, of course. Other Christians started this. That flip, that sense of self-satisfaction turns into guilt and embarrassment is exactly what Paul did in our last study. He, he lays out chapter 1 of Romans where he points out all these horrible people, all these sinful people, all these people who won't even acknowledge God. And, and just about the time you start nodding along and going, yeah, I can't stand those people. That's why I worship God. Blah, blah, blah. He gets to chapter 2 and goes, oh, and those of you who are judging those people, you're way worse. <laughs> like he, but sometimes he's like, because you've got your Bibles open and you still keep messing up. Like, he's like, you should know better. Like, those people don't know better. You should know better. And so just that feeling when your self-satisfaction kind of gets caught in your throat, that, that's the feeling that Paul has just led the Romans into when we get into today's passage. The second reason I bring it up, how thin-skinned the church is, uh, and how thin-skinned our world is right now, is to say that we have to do better. We have to do better. We cannot fear tension, um, especially in this book that we're studying right now, um, uh, this summer, because as we dig deeper and deeper in the book of Romans, we are going to uncover some very real tension. And, uh, and there is just no way to avoid that. And I'm not the kind of pastor who's going to make it easy on us. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what to believe and, and, uh, and I'm not going to just thin it down to super easy to swallow stuff because that's not what this book is about. Um, and I think we cheapen it if we try and do that. Um, so I think we all need to decide kind of right here and now that I'm here for it. Um, I'm, I want the real gospel, not just a confirmation of what makes me feel good. Um, we would rather uh, wrestle with Paul through these issues and let the gospel just do its thing on us. Just let it work on us. So, um, so I think going, going in, we have to know um, this is going to be a little tough, and that's okay. Um, the third reason I bring it up um, with this little speech on tension this morning is because I feel like um, we get a real special glimpse today of, of how our tension looks on God's side, um, how some of the big issues we wrestle over um, look when God deals with them. 
um, because uh, because it, it's it's not the same. And, and one of those tension gets kind of uh, that existed for a very very long time gets tied up in this passage. Um, all the tension that motivates. Um, some of these moments in, in human understanding, human logic, human vision, uh, what we would call human common sense. Um, this morning we get to see one of those um, from God's side, and it's kind of fun. So let's unpack all this for a little bit. Um, last time we left off with Paul declaring everyone to be sinners, fallen short of the glory of God. That's where we left off two weeks ago. And, uh, and that leads to this morning's beautiful kind of transition. Yet, so he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet, in his grace... God freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalties of our sin. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he was doing at this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God. And he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well, then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Please tell me you can feel some of the tension in that passage, like some of the, some of the back and forth. Um, this is the heart of the book of Romans. Uh, I'm going to say this a lot, a lot in this book, but everything that comes after this depends on this passage. You, you, um, everything come, depends on this. Um, in chapter 4, Paul's actually going to unpack and defend this thesis a little bit using an Old Testament example of Abraham. Um, but he's going to spend the next four chapters ultimately talking about this passage and how it just kind of unfolds in our life, the impact it has on us, the way it changes us. Um, he, how, we, how it fleshes out um, and, and does a work on us. And if you try to apply, preach, or expect any word from the book of Romans after this and you haven't camped out in this passage for a minute and gotten this settled, um, you can come up with a really wonky version of the gospel. This passage is essential to the rest of the book of Romans. And I know I've leaned in on, on the idea that, that we're all sinners for the past two weeks, but everything in this book is dependent on this early stuff. Uh, we have to be convinced, completely and totally convinced, that we're incapable um, of everything in this book. That nothing in this book can happen uh, because we're good, because we do things right, because we obey um, God's holy law. We are incapable and unworthy on our own. We have to know that. And we have to know, no, 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 um, that God, by His grace, made a way for us in Christ. Those two things are absolutely essential going forward. Um, completely because He's good, and He did this miracle of creativity and wisdom, which we're going to unpack in a little bit. But the main thing is God did it. God did it. We could not do it. We were completely sinners, so God did it. Not us, not our obedience, not our goodness, not our effort, not our moral superiority um, over the people that gross us out. God did it. Um, and in fact, Paul is so determined that, that we get this, and because I think he really knew human nature, he says this, um, can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No. No, we cannot boast. Paul knew what we want, uh, 
And he also knew what we need. He knew we, we needed grace. That's what we need. We need grace. And what we want is credit. <laughs> we, want, we want a pat on the back. We want to feel good like we, we did it. We want to feel better than the other guy. Well, at least I'm not that bad. Like we want something to boast about, brag about, even if it's just in our hearts a little bit. And Paul was like, no, 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 no. You cannot boast about anything. God did it all in his goodness. So here's the deal. We could get bogged down on every single line of this, but I only have like 60 to 90 minutes here, so we need to move on pretty fast. Um, <laughs> kidding. I said, <laughs> I said a minute ago um, that we have to know, know, know that God by his grace made a way for us in Christ which is key to this passage. And we call the, 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 that knowing, that knowing, we call that faith. Um, and God's going to use, or Paul's going to use that word really heavily for the rest of this book, which is important. Um, because the facts are simple. The facts are God presented Jesus to be a sacrifice for sin, period. Because remember now, we're using this model of the tabernacle um, in the wilderness of how this book lays out. Uh, and, and at this verse, we move from the door where we confess all our sins to the, to the altar where the sacrifice is made. And Paul says very clearly, God made the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Um, and that one little statement is reality. This, this is what happened. This, God paid for sins in his son. That happened. Period. Um, uh, what we believe, what we do, how we respond um, doesn't change that reality. The reality is God paid for your sins. The simple fact is that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, described and demonstrated the kingdom of God, gave himself willingly as a sacrifice for people. Willingly. Like I've, even when he told Pilate, like, you know, I could call 12 legions of angels right now, right? Um, he, he, he was not arrested. He gave himself to be sacrificed for us. That's real. That's what happened. Um, and here's the, the, what's so beautiful about this reality. It says, whom God set forth as a propitiation. I had to switch to the New King James because that's what I learned it in. And I'd mess it up. God had to switch or, or set forth as a propitiation for his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is, has faith in Christ Jesus. I had, like I said, I had to put that back to the New King James. But this short little statement here is why I said earlier um, that we're going to get to see tension from God's side. Um, uh, three different words in this verse are all used um, to talk about the same thing. And they all come from the same Greek root. Um, righteousness is diakosun. Um, just is diakos. And justifier is diakau or whatever. Um, all from the same root, meaning justice. All from the same um, uh, Greek word for justice. Um, it actually comes from a Greek goddess, Dike, D-I-K-E. I had to look up the pronunciation, and that's how it's pronounced. Um, uh, is, uh, is was the goddess of justice, the Roman goddess of justice, um, was Dike, and so their, their word for justice came from that name. Um, so God made humans um, and gave them rules uh, with a promise or a consequence. If you rebel, you'll die. And, uh, and they rebel. He makes a covenant with Abraham that his people will make a difference. Um, God pulls those people out of Egypt and makes a covenant with them, and they completely blow it. Um, we talked about that in our whole last symbol. So here's the dilemma. God uh, is madly in love with his rebellious creation. Um, he's promised them that if they rebel, they will owe a death. And uh, so if God were um, to just ignore or just freely forgive all the rebellion, pretending it never happened so he could spend eternity with the people he loves, he'd be a liar. He'd, be li- he'd lie for saying, if you do this, you'll die. 
Um, because he said, if you rebel, you'll die. So, so that would be unjust. If God were to just forgive sin and just ignore sin like it never happened, that would be unjust. But if he chooses justice, 100% of his creation spends eternity separated from God, the God who made them. And, this will for, and they'll forever be incapable of fulfilling what they were made for, the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God. And if you read your Bible, if you were to read your Bible in year 1 AD, so when Jesus is an infant and you're just reading the Old Testament, and you read that God is just God, is a, is a just God who always keeps his word, and that God loves his people and will always be there for them and is full of loving kindness and mercy, that he, he's just and he's loving, you'd have a hard time believing both. It would be a tension. Like, how can God love a sinful creation and be just and fair? In fact, Israel experienced that exact struggle. There was two prominent rabbis, Shammai and Hillel, and Shammai believed in justice and judgment, and, and he taught that. And Hillel believed in mercy and love and grace, and he taught that. And they both taught it out of the Old Testament. And they, it formed really two schools of thought in Israel. There was really two major camps of theology, the Shammai camp and the Hillel camp. And very few people believed both. You were either or. Everybody was either or. Either God was just and righteous and judging, or, or he was merciful and loving and forgiving. To try and believe both would create a great deal of tension and seem illogical to everybody. You cannot do both. You could, they didn't believe you could do both. But God not only knew how these two camps, the Shammai camp and the Hillel camp, would fit together, but he knew it way before... Shemaiah or Hillel had a great, 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 great grandfather. Like he knew this all along. Because in this verse, God shows his justice, true justice, perfect justice in such a way that he remains just and also gets to be the one who justifies the unrighteous because of faith. So what looked like tension to Shemaiah and Hillel really wasn't. God knew exactly how it would work. Because ultimately, we live in a fair world, believe it or not. We live in a just world. Did you know that every single person that has ever hurt you will be punished for it? The Bible says very clearly that, that we receive the punishment for our sins. Everyone who has ever sinned against you or wronged you, legitimately wronged, don't be a snowflake, but everyone who has legitimately wronged you will be, will, will be punished for that. Because we live in a world that God made just. And justice is important. And we live in a time and a place where we don't necessarily like that. We like mercy more, mostly because we're, we suck. And so we, we, we lean toward wanting mercy. Um, but there are parts of the world where it's not that way. Where people are like genuinely abused by other hateful people. And if you were to try and sell them a God of love... And they're like, God is not going to like fix my situation and judge my oppressors. Why would I want that God? I need a God that 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 makes things right. There are places in the world where justice is far more important than love to them. But they can trust God because God will punish every single evildoer, every single sinner. Either He'll punish them in their own bodies, or he will punish them in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. But God overlooks no sin. He overlooks no sin. Either we choose to bear the consequences of our own sin, 
Or when we put faith in Jesus Christ, all those consequences and not a one of them just gets washed away. They get born on the body of Christ on the cross. But no sin goes unpunished. Not a single sin goes unpunished. And God doesn't punish sin because he's angry and wants to punch somebody in the face. He does it because he's just. And it would be unjust to not do it. And there are people in the world who need to know that it's a world of justice. So God gets to both, in Christ, God gets to both remain just and, 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 and punish sin, and he gets to remain the one who is the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ, the loving one, the merciful one. Which takes me back to that statement, we have to know, know, know that God did this. Because Paul says it right in the next verse, after condemning all sinners um, and boldly declaring that God has taken care of sin in the person of Jesus Christ, he says this, people are made right with God when they believe. When they believe. So all of this justice, our sins, all that punishment that we are due and has to be paid because that's what justice does, is passed on to Jesus when we believe. Now, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on the apologetics here, which I think is interesting. He doesn't try to prove the reality of Jesus and, 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 and his sacrifice and his resurrection. He doesn't, he doesn't get historical, blah, blah, blah. He just says it. Paul says reality is reality. This is what God did. What matters is whether or not you believe it. Whether or not you believe that. And this word believe is fun. And it might mess with people a little bit. It's the word pistis. It's a really rich word, um, and I believe its complexity, um, the complexity of the word pistis is, is, uh, is why the writers of the Apostles' Creed chose the word credo um, for believe rather than the ten other options that, that were available in the Latin for like mentally believing something, for like how you might believe two and two is four. Like There was a lot of Latin words that did that, but they chose the word credo, and I think they did it because of this word um, pistis. Um, if, if that's all uh, Greek to you or... Latin or Greek or whichever one. Um, go back and listen to our I Believe series. We talk about it a lot there from the beginning of the year. But pistis wasn't um, a word that was used in Greek to explain a rational process. It wasn't the word in Greek that was used to explain that two and two is four, that George Washington was our first president. And I believe that. I believe two and two is four. That wasn't pistis. Pistis was actually an economic word. Um, and it's hard to, to directly translate into English because it's deeply steeped in context and relationship. It was part of the Hellenistic patron-client um, relationship, which I promise sounds odd to our modern kind of American independent ears. Um, in fact, this will sound weird, but maybe the best place to kind of experience this kind of relationship, although a really twisted version, is in a mafia movie um, because the mafia kind of adopted this system a lot, which you'll understand in a minute. Um, but in the Hellenistic days, this was, this was a huge part of their economy. In ancient Rome, um, people would, who had a great deal of money or political means um, would survive in the day-to-day um, by building a huge network of, uh, of relationships. Um, and the way that this would work is a rich person called a patron would do a huge favor um, for uh, somebody poor but useful, like usually a, someone in the merchant class. Um, and they would like either buy them a new location for their shop or they would pay a really large back debt um, or any numbers of favors. And this act, this favor was called a charis, 
Um, and this was this was used long before Paul picked this word up. This was part of the economic system. Um, but Paul uses this in his writings all the time. It's the word he uses that we translate grace. You would do a grace for somebody. You would do a care. You would do a favor. You would do something um, just out of the blue for somebody. Remember that last verse that said, yet God in his uh, grace, in his charis, in, in, his, uh, in his gift, freely makes us right in his sight. So the patron would step in and do um, a charis for a client. That's what they would call the person who does it for a client. Um, this poor, uh, needy person. Um, something the client never could have done on their own. Never could have dreamed of doing on their own. Uh, and the client would then be invited in return for this charis to pay back with pistis. It was the word they used, pistis. Um, which can be translated in the Greek faith or faithfulness. There's not one word for faith and a different word for faithfulness. The, the same word pistis is used both. Even, no matter how the English translates it, the Greek word is always just pistis. And this system existed long before Paul kind of decided to use these words to describe the gospel. And here's the thing to remember about this system. First, <coughs> this is a class-divided society. So, like, lower-class people had no chance of becoming upper class, like you were, you were stuck in your class. So when we think of, of this, we, like, we think of, you know, um, especially if you see it in a mafia movie where the mafia comes in, builds this network, that they're keeping middle class people from, from exceeding. There was no middle class in Rome. It was lower class, upper class. Um, so in ancient Rome, the lower class wanted nothing more than to have a patron and have a strong patron. So the, the, what they dreamed about was a patron coming in and, and, and accepting them. Um, strong patronage was sought. Um, so when I say a mafia movie is a good way to see this, that's not exactly true because they really twisted this. Um, but they kind of use the same system. But in ancient Rome, a gift or charis of a patron is what you wanted more than anything so that you could survive. Um, to try and make it uh, as a merchant of any kind at all without a patron was almost impossible. Um, so the patron was the savior. And, uh, and from that point on, from that moment, the patron gave grace. Um, the client was theirs. Um, like, if, and if they were expected to be faithful to the to the patron, you know, and that bugs us sometimes because we're we're kind of independent. But the client wanted this relationship. Um, once they had a patron, they were set. Like they they would they'd still work hard, of course. Like, um, and whenever the patron called, they'd come running in a second. Um, but they knew they would now be taken care of. They knew they were now. Um, you know, had someone looking out for them. They wouldn't starve. They would have work. They would have resources and protection. And all this came from the patron. And the part of us that still kind of groans um, uh, like that, this isn't true freedom. You know, that part, I think, is the teenager part of us, that like part that believes, you know, that once I get out of mom and dad's house, I'll be free. And you're like, yeah, free to work and pay bills and, and you know, get behind on stuff <laughs> like none of us not like freedom is not freedom like we we thought we'd, we'd be free you know and uh and we tell our you know your kids are like when do i move out and you're like oh yeah i cannot wait to watch this this is gonna be awesome anyway that's the part of us that when we hear about you know signing up for a patron now you basically owe this patron you know that's the part of us that doesn't like that we're like um that's the teenager part of us but the client was faithful to the patron they responded with faith, with pistis. And, uh, and the faithfulness was organic, given freely by the client, in gratitude for the grace given. Now, I know that uh, many of us have embraced over the years the understanding that faith basically means if you agree with this list of facts, you're saved. 
And I, and I do think it's important to believe the list of facts, because the list of facts are exactly why this metaphor is worth buying into. Um, but Paul could have chosen other metaphors. He could have said, he could have chosen the metaphor of a Passover lamb, uh, and, and, and that is applied to us when we put the, the blood on the doorposts of our hearts. Because that's the metaphor John chose. He could have chose that, that, that Jesus was like the atonement sacrifice that the high priest made on the Day of Atonement, only it wasn't a, like rams and bulls. It was a once and for all sacrifice. And, and that's what the writer of Hebrews chose because he wrote to, well, Hebrews. But Paul, writing to Gentiles and diaspora Jews who had been living amongst the Gentiles for a long time, he chose this patron-client relationship because they would have understood that metaphor. And here's why I think it's important. Even with all the mafia baggage um, over the patron-client relationship in our day, why I think it's important that, that we gain an understanding of this um, weird old relationship that seemed to inspire Paul to choose these words. Because we get stuck in this tension between faith and works all the time. Do I get to heaven by believing or by doing the things God tells me to do? We, we know both are important, but we don't know exactly how important. Paul could not be more plain that by no works of the law can we be saved. Zero, nada. He's made that statement several times. It doesn't matter how much we try to be good, we can't be good enough. We can't do it. Paul could not be more clear on this fact. That only by faith can we be saved. Sometimes the translators use the word believe instead of faith, but it's all the word pistis in Greek. All the same word. But then Paul says stuff like this. Can we forget the law? Of course not. Of course we can't. You see the tension? The problem is we're so binary. We're like law, uh, or no law, and just faith. Okay, I got it. Sweet. So we don't need the law. Paul's like, wrong. Still need the law. And if you're Paul, you might say, or if you were with Paul, you might say, okay, so then we focus on the law. And he probably would have smacked you. Like, are you not listening to me at all? No, you don't focus on the law. And you're like, okay, dude, pick a team. Right? Which brings us to the question, how shall we be saved? And many of us believe by agreeing with the facts about what Jesus has done. Or, by living a godly life and obeying the law of God. And most of us live in this binary choice. And we flop back and forth because we know it's faith. We know that. We know it's faith. You can't read anywhere in the New Testament without getting that. But we also know you can't just run around and ignore God's law and do whatever you want. We know that too. God gave his law because living right matters and it's good for us and it's good for society and it's just better when we do. We know that. Not to mention, Paul makes it very clear several times in this book that we can't just ignore the law. We're going to unpack that more in chapter 6. And so many of us bounce back and forth wondering like where the line is, how we handle both of these. And I honestly believe the idea Paul is trying to communicate and why I feel the patron-client relationship is so powerful is because I think Paul would say, no, you're looking at it wrong. There's another answer. And the answer is relationship. You actually enter a relationship. A real relationship. And here's why that's so powerful. We like answer A because it's something we can do. Right? People do it all the time. They don't want to go to hell. Who does? And so someone tells them that if they believe in Jesus, they will not go to hell. And they say, cool, tell me how to do that. 
I will repeat after you and say amen at the end. Sweet. Done. I'm good. I did what I need to do to ensure my ticket. I'm in. I'll see you every Christmas and Easter. And maybe if I really need something from God. We like option A because we feel in control of the process. And that really bugs the rest of us because we instinctively know that's not what it's about. Right? We can feel that. That that was too cheap. But how do we fix it? You tell that guy, no, it's not quite that easy. You, you need to go to church. And you really need to stop at least some of your bad habits. And you definitely need to read your Bible. You need to pray. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor your, the Sabbath. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Start to sound familiar? We're right back where we started. We're right back in the old system. Option B. And some of us like that system because, again, it's something we can control. It's something we can measure. It's got a metric to it. Did you or didn't you? I don't care if you naturally draw to A or B. I think those are mostly about us. Things we can do. Something we feel that, that we can do and when it's done, it's done. We've done it. And that's why Paul steps in and says, it's not about either of those. It's about entering this whole new relationship. And here's what that will likely look like. You will not be your own. He's going to really, he's going to actually use the word slaves in chapter 6, which we're going to have to unpack. It's a whole different deal. He's like, you will not be your own anymore. You, you will be able to totally rest in the security and protection of your patron. That's awesome. You'll likely work your butt off. You'll know riches and provision you never could have dreamed of. You'll get closer and closer to your patron every year. You'll do so many things to please your patron. Your patron will do so many things to take care of you that uh, the idea of keeping score will be a joke. You ever had a friendship like that where you do things for them, they do things for you? you do, like, and the idea of like who owes who is like washed out in the in the in the whole relationship of like who knows who's up one. All I know is when they call, I come. Yeah, it's like that. You'll be a part of your patron's entire network. All the connections and relationships that that affords you. When you mess up, you, you like your patron won't have to punish you because you'll be so bummed that you disappointed them that you'll likely punish yourself way worse than the patron ever would. And I could go on and on and on. But it's that kind of relationship This is, yeah, I, I still obey the patron's rules. Why wouldn't I? Paul's like, are, are, are you listening to what I'm describing here? Of course you'll do what the patron wants. They're your patron. Like, it's, it's not an issue of, of, of what rules do I obey. It's I love my patron. Came in and took care of me. Of course I'm faithful. Now, I'm not suggesting the entire gospel message can be you know, from the first sin in the garden all the way to Jesus' imminent return and judgment can be summed up in this ancient Roman economic system. But can you see why Paul might draw to this metaphor of Charis and Pistis, patron and client, to describe what a life of faith, or, or you could call it a life of faithfulness, looks like? And we're going to spend a lot of time over the next few weeks talking about this concept of faith and grace and works and how they all go together in the life of a believer. 
And if you don't believe, if you don't believe me in, in what it means to put your faith in Jesus, we have plenty of room for disagreement here. Like, that's fine. But the gist of what I'm trying to say is this entire Romans package is rooted in the idea of relationship with Jesus. Faith, faithfulness, pistis, whatever you want to call it, it it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's stepping into a new dynamic. It's stepping into a new relationship completely. And like any relationship, it includes effort and connection and trust and authenticity and all the things that a good relationship needs. And I promise you, the, the original Roman readers wouldn't have needed all this explanation on what charis and pistis meant. This would have been the first thing their minds would have done when they heard those words. It would have informed everything else they read. But in the end, we are saved by God's grace, which we respond to with faith, with pistis. And that is the gospel. It's that simple. And if you don't get that, that you are un- unworthy without God, and God did it for you, and you embrace that by faith, by stepping into that relationship, nothing else in this book makes sense and can actually throw you off. If you don't get this right, it can throw you off. So how do we respond to this? Don't get excited. My response is a little bit long. We don't really have time to go through chapter 4 line by line like I would like to, like I probably should. But Paul basically spends this chapter defending this thesis. So he's just made a thesis that God paid for our sins and we embrace it by faith. And then in chapter 4, he defends that thesis. Paul's primary example for his defense is Abraham which I think is just awesome because it completely makes Paul's points without clearing up any of the ambiguity and tension, <laughs> which, is, which is, is beautiful. Here's what I mean by that. The main argument is this. Um, and I recommend going home and reading chapter 4. It's really good. Um, but the main argument is that the law, the rules, the do's and don'ts that we use as guidelines for righteousness, for defining when, when, you're, when you're doing things you're supposed to be doing, didn't show up in any defendable form for a thousand years after Abraham. So to say that Abraham was in any way righteous because he obeyed the law is laughable. Because the law didn't show up for another thousand years. Paul brings that out, which is, which is important. So if Abraham is declared righteous before there was even a law to keep, then how could you say that obeying the law is how you become righteous? That's a good argument. Even more, Paul pulls out this line. It's a quote from, from Genesis chapter 15. It's a big one. For the scriptures tell us, this is Paul's talking, for the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now this quote is huge and actually becomes the anchor of a great deal of New Testament theology. Um, really it's a key verse in the whole gospel. Um, because if uh, all of a sudden around 33 AD God decided to change the game and go, you know what, I know I said we were going to obey the law, um, but I changed it. We're going to do faith. Let's switch to faith. We're going to do faith now. Um, you know, the people would have a reason to be upset. It'd be like if I came up here and said, it's actually not about obeying God's law. It's not about faith. God told me it's now about money and how much money you get. Wait, people have tried that. Never mind. Scratch that. Um, <laughs> but seriously, Paul's message sounded like God was changing the rules. Right in the middle of the game. But Paul points back to Abraham, specifically this verse in chapter 15, and says, faith has always been the game. To a Jewish audience who, as fixated as they were on Moses, tracked their whole roots back to Abraham, this is a powerful argument. When you can point that far back, and, and you've got the scripture saying, this person was righteous because of their faith, you realize Paul's not changing anything. 
we sang same God just a few minutes ago, and we did not plan that. It was just kind of cool. Paul's going, he's the same God as he was in Abraham, counting righteousness for faith. But here's the thing. Though Abraham is a slam dunk defense for faith being the means by which we're counted righteous, it doesn't exactly clear up the road of what that looks like. When the Bible originally makes the statement that Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness, it was in the middle of an argument between Abraham and God. It's kind of funny. It's one of the only times you can hear those two arguing, God and Abraham. God reiterates the covenant he had already made with Abraham back in chapter 12. We studied that in Lent. And Abraham sort of gets snotty with God. God is like, I'm going to bless you. And Abe goes, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since, since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant of my household, is going to inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. I could be wrong about this, but I think Abraham is like 15, 16, 17 years old in this passage. Um, kidding. Like, can you hear the teenage angst in that? The, that, kind of, that kind of snotty frustration? There's some like 75-year-old teenage angst here. I don't know what good your blessings are. I don't even have anybody to give them, share them with. And God responds to this kind of angsty attitude by saying, no, trust me, you're going to have a whole bunch of heirs. Stars in the sky. Like tons of heirs. And in verse 6 of Genesis, it quotes the, the verse that Paul quotes. And Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So in the middle of this argument, in the middle of this, uh, the, 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 the context is so key, because it doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. It says Abraham believed God. And that's quite a bit different. When you, when you imagine that it's not Abraham, but it's, it's you, and, and someone was asking, do you believe in Jesus? Well, that's quite a bit different. Believing in Jesus as a historical figure that did all these things, and believing Jesus. But Paul, Paul's key witness in the defense of salvation sola fide by faith alone is this heated emotional conversation between Abraham and God where Abraham in the end basically says, okay, if you say it, I believe it. That's all that's taken place here. God says, I'm going to give you lots of heirs and Abraham believed him. And it was counted as righteousness. Now he's righteous. And if that doesn't clear up the kind of ambiguity and tension of what, what saving faith is supposed to look like, believe me, it actually gets worse. Because James comes along and uses this exact same example of Abraham to say that works play a really important part in the life of faith. Definitely not that you can get saved by works, but, but that to live, to live out your faith, you'll do works. And it's a great example because Abraham is maybe one of the most obedient people in the Bible. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, and that, my friends, is the day I become a Buddhist. <laughs> like, kidding, I hope. But yeah, God says, do it, and Abraham obeys. So the same guy who believes this far out, unbelievable you know, thing that God tells him is counted as righteousness, he's also a crazy obedient dude. Not perfect, there's plenty of evidence about, to the contrary, but obedient. And that's the point I think that, that God has for us this morning. Paul's prime example of Abraham makes it 100% clear that righteousness comes by faith and always has. 
But Abraham's relationship with God sounds a whole lot closer to the patron-client relationship alluded to by words like charis and pistis than it does a, a rational thought exercise where I mentally agree with a handful of truth claims about my life. The gospel should be transformational. It should change everything. We should just wake up knowing that we are not our own. Being saved is accepting uh, this, this gigantic gift by faith. Because remember, when Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness, zero had changed in the evidence. Abraham was still old. His wife was still barren and past menopause. There was no evidence, just God's word. God said, you're going to have lots of kids. Abraham said, okay, I'm going to have lots of kids. Believed God and it was counted as righteousness. It's almost like how there is zero evidence that we are made righteous by believing in Jesus. I still mess up all the time. I still doubt. I still get frustrated with God. I still fear. But God said, I'm made right by what Jesus did on my behalf. And I believe that. I accept that. And what is faith? It's saying, I'm yours. I'm all in. If, if you say that's what happened, I believe you. And I'm all in. I'm your client. I'm on your team. I want this relationship. I'm in. In the client patron relationship, a client could say no. Hey, they pay your back debt. No, thank you. But all they have to do for their whole reality to change is just, is just accept. Yes, I'll take this gift. I will take this gift. And their whole reality changes. All that to say, we've been invited into a beautiful relationship with an incredibly benevolent God who loves us and has given us a gift we could never have gotten for ourselves. Say yes. Please, please, please say yes. Let's go to the table.